This program was produced at KUSP Central Coast Public Radio and KUSP.org. Hello and welcome once again to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show, art, authenticity, race, identity, youth and age, Europe and America. All that and more in the work of one singular artist, the singer-songwriter known as Stu. I spoke to him during the development of his musical theater piece, Passing Strange, which later became a Broadway hit and has now been released on film by Spike Lee. Stu is one of the most interesting and original figures on the music scene today, in the opinion of this radio host, so stick around and listen. And now on to today's show. A conversation with a musician I've admired for a long time. He's known simply as Stu, which is also the name of the band he leads with his partner Heidi Rodewald. I got together with Stu a couple of years ago when he was developing a new musical theater piece, his first, called Passing Strange. It later premiered at the Berkeley Repertory Theater, then went on to the Public Theater in New York, and finally on to Broadway itself. It was a critical hit, got a slew of Tony nominations, and was even filmed by Spike Lee. The movie version was recently released in theaters and is on demand on cable TV. In the interview we're going to hear today, Stu and I discussed the play in progress, and uh, we played some music clips from a very early performance of the play before its official premiere and before the final casting was in place. And uh, a little background on the play before we cut to the interview. Passing Strange is a kind of musical pilgrimage. It follows an 80s-era black youth, he's known only as youth, who flees his straight-laced L.A. suburb to pursue a fantasy life as a songwriter in Europe. He's seeking identity, artistic truth, and a sense of place. Who isn't? But before the story's done, all those ideals are turned upside down. Stu, welcome to the show. Thank you. The, the early parts of this play are set in L.A., where our character, the youth, is um, being browbeaten into going to church by his mom. Mm-hmm. And he has a very cynical view of what happens in this black church. Yes. There's a song about it called The Baptist Fashion Show. Yes. Describe it. Baptist Fashion Show basically points to the you know, sort of phenomenon of, you know, the average sort of black church, at least that I attended when I was um, young enough to still get pushed to church. In a sense, it was the parade point. It was where all the pageantry of the inherent pageantry of the black community really sort of, that was the parade. It was the Oscars. You could say that. Yeah, definitely. And um, this is where, uh, the kid sort of recognizes this, you know, the moment he becomes conscious of, you know, himself, he recognizes the fact that everyone here is thinking more about the way they look than what's actually happening. At church, they'd give the impression that a woman might go to hell if her hair wasn't done and her stockings had a run and she wasn't dressed like Patti LaBelle. His mother never let him know how she felt about the game of the Baptist fashion show and how they both felt the same. But she still figured Jesus was better than the streets because he was getting to that age where young boys start to freak. They even dumped his soul in that murky fish bowl. It swam, but it didn't get saved. And if this is what heaven looks like, he didn't care how the streets were paved. It was holy war on Sunday morning. And so the kid, that kind of classic sort of teenage, you know, when you can really have like 20-20 vision, when hypocrisy like holy raises its head, you know, you just, morning. you can just nail it. 
And he's just like, you know, where's the dress to impress verse in the Bible? He wanted to see Jesus in rags, pushing a shopping cart of plastic bags, matted hair, void of hope. Could Jesus make it past this velvet rope? Holy war on Sunday morning. Holy war on Sunday morning. This is uncharted territory for you, isn't it? Musical theater? Yes. Musical theater is definitely uncharted territory for me. Is it scary? Uh... No, not 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 scary because um, it's only things are only to me they're only really scary if you have your ego involved in it, and my ego isn't involved in this. My ego is involved in songwriting, and being in a band. Your ego's not involved in it, and yet it's billed as semi-autobiographical. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, to me, I think what we're doing is we're just using we're just using autobiography as a sort of starting point. It's as much James Baldwin's story and Josephine Baker's story and maybe three or four of my friends who went to Europe with me. It's like our story, you know. It's it's the black expatriate story in Europe to me. You know, that's one of the stories. The seventies, eighties version. Yeah, I would I would say it's very eighties in that in that particularly in Europe it kind of epitomized a particular kind of political time in Europe that was really vibrant, you know. So yeah that I don't think is there anymore, really. So I want you to talk about a couple scenes and a couple of songs. Sure. Arlington Hill. They, are, they Basically, in Arlington Hill, you have four young people who are getting stoned before they go to choir rehearsal. They look out over South Central L.A., because Arlington Hill is a hill that affords you this kind of view. And the conversation that... You know, it's really not a conversation. It's more of a monologue. This character, Mr. Franklin, basically, he's the choir director, and he holds court, and he's, you know, he's the he's the prince of that world. You know, Adams and Crenshaw is beautiful, and we are laughing in the sun. They parachute into church so they can sing before practice is done. When they raise one voice, stoned angels weep. Oh, can you feel the Holy Ghost creeping up slowly? Talk a little bit about Franklin or Mr. Franklin, whichever way he should be referred to. Yeah. Uh, when I used to think that um, I was an outsider and me and my friends were outsiders, it's like black guys in our world who maybe liked weird music or read books that our peers weren't reading. We fancied ourselves as the ultimate outsiders. But when we started getting to know black gay men who came up in church worlds and these kind of conservative worlds that we came up in, we realized, whoa, you know, these guys were the real outsiders. And the more outside you are, the clearer your vision is of the world that you're excluded from. You know, that's just by nature. That's nothing mystical about it. It's just if you have to stand outside and look at something, you see it clearer than the person who's inside of it, just bouncing around like a pinball. So Franklin's language and the way he describes the world and the things he knows about it's a major influence on the kid half the time he didn't know what mr franklin was talking about 
But that was okay, cause Franklin's words would wash over him like a Bach fugue creeping out of the cheap car stereo on the brother side of midnight when the music goes right over your head and straight into that part of you which is most beautiful. I mean when your mind can't grasp the music's math and your heartbeat has no clue, your pilgrim soul just follows the melody's path and it says thank you for this fugue, thank you for this fugue, thank you for this fugue and it just is and it just is and it just is so much that whether you get it or not, it's got. Arlington Hill is sort of the first time that the kid in this play really sort of sees that there are possible worlds beyond his own. And he hears about those worlds from a from an outsider such as himself. The only difference is this outsider's never been to those worlds. He's only seen them on movie screens. The explanation flickered at 24 frames per second on a revival house screen in a foreign movie scene. Oh, now I'm gonna show you exactly what I mean. Naked girls at breakfast tables talking Hegel and Camus. And men dressed up in Galois smoke quote marks right back at you. All this might seem obscure that would depend on who you are. All this and Europe to merci beaucoup, Monsieur Godard. So the main character in this play, Passing Strange, uh, leaves his home in Los Angeles in the confines of a middle-class existence and goes to Europe with a sense that this is the promised land. Yes. Intellectuals, artists, mm -hmm. um, sex. Mm -hmm. um, did you go there with those kinds of feelings when you went? Mastriani, Belmondo. I think I went there, yes, with all those things in mind. Kinski, Jean-Pierre Leo. Oh, I think I went there mostly, though, with the idea of leaving what I didn't like about Los Angeles and America behind, you know. This, the story of coming of age, mm -hmm. the story of the rebellious youth trying mm -hmm. to escape his, his uh, family of origin and his neighborhood and, and make something of himself, mm -hmm. has been done so many times. Mm -hmm. You had to be very conscious of all the cliches. Right. You had to be... He had to work very hard to make something new of this. Well, I don't think it's really working hard to avoid the cliches as much as, as much as it's recognizing the cliches and maybe kind of even using some of them, you know. Kind of one of the joys of exploring this area that's been explored many times before is that we have this wonderful bundle of cliches that we can always draw on and comment on, you know, and I think it actually helps tell the story sometimes, you know, so, and it's also not the normal coming of age story because kind of the story, this story really, the kid, that's part of the point is that the kid really never does come of age. I mean, the narrator really in a lot of ways is still a kid. This is what music can do to you you know it can it can it can stunt your it can stunt one kind of your growth you know what i mean you know i still have trouble 
you know, like balancing like a checkbook. You know, I actually don't have trouble. I actually can't balance a checkbook. And that's because if I had any other job, I probably would, you know. But being a musician, you're sort of allowed to kind of not grow up. So in that respect, it's not the classic coming-of-age story at all. Our, our main character, who's known only as youth, um, is a songwriter. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I said, he, he leaves his home in L.A., tries to escape his roots and, and uh, become something new, reinvent himself. There's this constant tension between what song can do mm-hmm. and what song can't do mm-hmm. and song is in some at some points contrasted with love mm-hmm. which is what his mother gave him and wasn't enough for him mm-hmm. tell me about the relationship between song and love well it's really for more specifically it's really about art and love and i think that it's really really easy for an artist of any kind of um in any genre to just to have this all-consuming thing that makes you want to wake up in the morning, you know, makes you want to go home from the bar, no matter how much fun you're having, because there's this unfinished painting that you just can't wait to get to. And that's this really kind of goofy, indescribable, single-minded thing that I can only compare to being in love, you know, when you actually are at the dinner table with 20 people and you're having the best meal of your life, but all you can think about is trying to go to that place where you might bump into that person that you're in love with, you know, and you're, you're never really anywhere actually there. You know, the, 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 the where you want to be is with that person or with that picture or with that song or with that band, you know? And so I think art and love are these. And, and I think what happens is that artists confuse the two. And then when they want to have actual human interactions, they tell the human they want to interact with, well, come into my painting, come into my song, come into my play, you know, come into this world with me, you know, and the person who you invite in is like, well, maybe I don't want to, you know, there's a lot, maybe there's not enough room for me and the painting and you, I just want to be with you. And then the artist says, well, but this is me, you know, and this is love. So come join me and stand in front of the painting with me and tell me what you think, if there's too much green or not. And some people don't want to, to be there. I mean, I've, I've rock bands are like families. That's also why it's very easy to confuse art with love because rock bands do become families, you know, and you know, they become these surrogate families and, 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 and it's just, you can live like this for years and not realize that it's happening, you know, where suddenly the drummer becomes your cousin, you know? I mean, even now, this kid we're playing with is one of our friends that we're playing with. I mean, I look at him like he's my, he's, he's a drummer, right? But I have a, this attitude towards him, this sort of like halfway avuncular kind of, you know, thing with him. I just do it unconsciously. I'm not, you know what I mean? And it's just, it's, I have to catch myself sometimes because he's an adult man. He's 25 years old. But to me, he's this, he's like my kid. When he's in my band, you know, he's my kid, you know? And so it's, it's, it's weird, you know? It just kind of happens, you know? Well, when when in your life, you've been a, a committed, um, passionate songwriter for a very long time. When in your life did you begin to suspect or believe that song wasn't the ultimate mistress? Uh, that's a really good question, which I wish you would have sent me last night so I could have thought about it. <laughs> uh, I thought maybe there was an epiphany. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I yeah, Let's see. That's such a good question. Um, I don't really know if I could really pinpoint it. I think it's one of those kind of gradual things where like there's like a leak in the bathroom and you know you put the pot 
on the ground to kind of catch the water as it's leaking, and then you just go about your business, and every once in a while you kind of look down there, and it fills up a little more. And I, it probably was – it certainly wasn't the epiphany. Like when I was 17 and my friends were preparing for the SAT test, I didn't prepare because I knew that the SAT was not going to have anything to do with me being an artist. I didn't want to study art at school. I wanted to be in a rock band, and that's what I wanted to do. So I didn't take the SAT. So that was literally like a moment where I really decided, because you either take the test or you don't. And didn't tell my parents I wasn't taking it, but I didn't take it. So that at 17 was like, okay, I'm going to be an artist now. I'm going to do this. Easy um, call. Easy call to make at seventeen. Of yeah, course, you know? yeah. But yeah, the moment where I realized that that art wasn't the only thing in the world. See, I don't think I don't think I ever thought it was the only thing in the world. I think I actually thought that I was this completely sort of like well-rounded, self-actualized person. It was that the evidence started piling up that I wasn't. You know, I don't think I walked around like you know Kirk Douglas in in the uh, Van Gogh story. You know, lust for life. Lust for life. That's right. <laughs> I wasn't, no, I thought I really was like, you know, oh, I can tell you one thing. When you start to hear the same thing, when you're, when you're 42 and your girlfriend says the same thing to you that your ex-wife said, that your girlfriend at 23 said, that your mom said at 14. (laughs) Now, now the youth, the main character in the play, goes to Berlin and becomes uh, fairly popular. And there's a song that expresses the the grounds of his popularity, the black one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the black one is just is just this sort of the experience of this odd uh, situation wherein you were just one of the guys back home, and then with a simple sort of change of venue for no particular reason other than your color you become celebrated for, in many ways, the very thing that back home in L.A. you might have been chased by the LAPD and pulled over unfairly for, you know, or racially profiled for. Who lends the club that speakeasy air? The black one, the black one. Who dances like a god and has wunderbar hair, the black one. Now he's the life of every soiree. He gives the bums rush to their ennui. Turn up the lights cause they barely can see the black one. You know, anytime like the stranger or the outsider goes into a different world, you know, and becomes sort of like the novelty, you know. I mean, Josephine Baker, you know, knew a whole lot about this arguably you could say she wrote the book on it but at the same time james baldwin knew a lot about this and those are really the two sort of patron saints of this of this play in a lot of ways shooby dooby doo and shooby dooby dee because he's the black one it's actually very very ben franklin also you know when ben franklin used to go to france he used to play up the whole american sort of outdoorsman thing he would wear like I think he wore I don't know if it was a coonskin cap or he wore some kind of like outdoorsman kind of shtick and the French loved the fact that he was like the real outdoorsy wild American and he completely played on this and I mean he was being celebrated by royalty he was like you know I mean he was he was the guy 
but he completely played on this kind of European, you know, the way they kind of aesthetize uh, 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 American, what they might call low culture, you know. Now, the title of the play is Passing Strange, and it's got that loaded word passing in it, which is used a fair amount in the play. The the character who's uh, in Germany at the time is passing for ghetto. He he finds he can make more of an impression if he uh, describes himself dishonestly as coming from the hood yes. and uh, a world of drive-by shootings and crack houses. It makes a much bigger impression than the truth, which is that he comes from a middle-class family. Yes. Did you ever do that? I, I went to Europe with, with basically with like two other black Americans. And we really were kind of like, it was really like this kind of Petri dish, you know? And without naming any names, we all kind of had our areas of, you know, occasional passing that we, you know, and some of them, some of us worked it like to extremes, you know, and, and to ends. I think, I think I used it as leverage in political discussions quite often because especially in germany the political discussions are like you know like the table gets cleared and the cigarettes come out and it's like there's an issue on the table and you don't really leave the table till you know you know i was involved with like you know after the wall fell i was involved with some black political groups there that really would like you would talk all day about things you know and decide what you were going to do what this group was going to do and i would sort of pull that rank sometimes, you know, like when it really came down to like, well, you don't understand the, you know, and of course the Germans were always about, well, this has nothing to do with race. Politics has to do with politics. And these are systems, you know, that we are trying to sort of like, you know, destroy or dismantle or for, find our way around. And we're all sort of doing this as human beings. And I, and I think a lot of other, you know, blacks who maybe felt like playing that card were like, well, no, there's this other, this this mystery area this mystery area that you don't know anything about, which is what it's like to be black. So it's sort of like using your biography as, as kind of like a weapon, you know, which, of course, anyone can do, you know, and, and, and a lot of people do do, you know. But I think that's where it was for me. It was more it was more like and sometimes completely disingenuous, like when you just wanted to win the argument and you knew you could just pull that card, you know. But again, the reason why a lot of that came about something that's not in the play is that we used to call certain people that we would meet who we knew were only into us because we were these American specimens. We used to call them the anthropologists because we could tell from like the first five minutes whether they really wanted to be our friend or whether they were just interested in grilling us for ghetto information. So if you meet somebody and you find out, well, to be quite frank, if the way you're going to get this girl into bed is by telling her these tales, you know, you know, I mean, and this is why, like, this whole passing strains just comes from a section in Othello, right? Where, like, the way Desdemona falls in love with Othello is because he tells her these amazing tales from his travels, you know, from all the wars he's fought. Now, she could, you know, speak better to this, but I believe he really didn't see guys with heads, cannibals, and, you know, he, Othello worked it, you know, he saw that Desdemona was, like, intrigued by these stories, and so he would come back and he would tell them, you know, and he would kind of stretch the truth to the point where we were talking about, you know, all kinds of wondrous, crazy, scary things that he had done and seen, and you, she, he could see her falling in love with him, I think, you know, as any person would, if you tell the tale and they lean closer, 
well, then you're going to stretch the tail out a little more. The, the more you stretch it out, the, the closer they lean in. And once you see that happening, you know what I mean? How do you stop stretching the truth when the more you stretch it, the closer she gets? Do you know what I mean? So that just happens. Everybody does that if you're in that position. But, uh, but I think the key thing here is that I think it's a two-way street. When you see that hunger for this particular narrative that they've been, they look at you and they immediately ascribe a narrative to you. A black narrative. Yeah, yeah. And when you see, and when you see that hunger, something and you kind of wants to give it to them in some kind of weird way. Let's talk about blackness. It sounds like something I would say on stage. <laughs> well, maybe I should say this with a German accent. <laughs> Is your blackness the main subject of your art? God, you really did your homework for a play that's not even finished. You're amazing, man. Um, race for me is like a toy. It's like a really wonderful toy. And, and I, it's just, there's nothing to me more fun to play with than that toy because it's got these really sharp edges and, and, you know, it's, it's harmful if swallowed and, and, and it, it, it can be really painful and really, really funny and it hits people in the gut particularly in this country, because it's what we're still so completely uptight about after all these years. So it's just a wonderful toy. So I feel kind of like, God, I'm, I'm glad I'm a black artist and not a, anything else, because I just have this wonderful toy to play with. You know. Now, now I'm joking, because that, that line is actually from the play. It's a, a German character speaking to our songwriter protagonist, and uh, a lot of dumb questions are thrown at him, including, is your, is your blackness the main subject of your art? But for you, it's a tool that you wield. It's one of um, many artistic choices that you can pull into a work. But was it thrust on you by growing up in a color-obsessed country, or was it something that you took by choice? Oh, I think it's probably a combination of both. I mean, yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, we. I think the context that I... You know, I, I grew up thinking i never grew up thinking that you know black people were like these sort of deeply depressed trod upon people i grew up in this sort of like kind of post-civil rights where like you know every family i knew owned a home and people were going to college you know and it wasn't idyllic because we were in the city so of course we knew about people getting beat up by police you know but hippies were getting beat up by police and you know guys with afros were getting beat up by police so i mean we were utterly conscious of race but it wasn't like the thing that like it didn't rule our lives the way that it probably ruled my father's life you know or at least ruled it to a larger extent than it ruled mine you know so yeah i mean it, it, it was i didn't i didn't grow up in the way that i mean when you read richard wright you realize that every single day of richard wright's life he had to think about being black that's the difference between richard wright's generation and Baldwin's generation, and the generation I grew up in. We didn't have to think about it every day. This is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and we'll get back to my conversation with the singer-songwriter Stu right after a break. Meanwhile, let's listen to some music by Stu, his partner and bassist Heidi Rodewald, and their former band, The Negro Problem. This has come down now from their album Joys and Concerns. The song is also featured in the musical Passing Strange, which is the subject of the interview I'm airing today. Now when you are knee deep in Elliot's footnotes and your eyes are closing, I 
stop this posing I'm looking at the ceiling Thinking about nothing really The church song So come down now Remove your bandage So I can see your damage More than the law allows So come down now Remove your bandage So I can see your damage More than the law And now back to my interview with the singer-songwriter Stu, discussing his musical theater piece, Passing Strange, which, by the way, is the subject of a recently released film by Spike Lee. I started this part of the conversation by asking Stu about the significance of that word, passing, which is a major theme of the play. Well, passing, as, as most people, I guess, I don't know, 40 and over, should know, it was a phenomenon wherein light-skinned black people could get jobs, get employed by, you know, making people think they were white, basically. You know, my grandmother was light enough to pass, and I can remember being in the store with my grandmother and having her be in the aisle, and she's buying something, and she's talking to some white woman, and then suddenly I would walk up, and I I can remember just, like, clocking that little fraction of a second of just like, oh, you know what I mean? And then it would be done, but it was like, I totally, I was clocking that at like age seven, I would say. And the first sort of hook of this show, the first sort of sort of catchphrase that fires the kid's imagination is when Mr. Franklin says, you know, we're just, uh, we outsiders, you know, we black outsiders, we're just black folks passing for black folks, you know, good, you know, laundrymen, uptight, morally upstanding, you know. All the characters are, everybody's wearing a mask of one kind. Or yes, that. yes, absolutely. Everyone has a mask in this play, and the whole, you know, 
including me. I mean, I, I this play started out as autobiography for about six minutes until I realized that in order to tell this story, I would have to start making it an actual story and not just, you know, I mean, I liked the idea of autobiography, like I said, for about five or 10 minutes. And after that, I started drawing on all the people who, you know, so like I said to me, if someone asked me whose story this is, it's, it's Josephine Baker's story. It's some James Baldwin in there. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, and it's, and it's anybody who ever left home looking for something, you know, anybody who was ever just like hungry for more life, you know, I mean, anybody. Now, in Arlington Hill, going back to that one, and and so many other scenes and songs, um, there's references to slavery. Mm-hmm. There was a need, you see, for a psychedelic underground railroad ride. There was a need, you see, to slip out of the slaveholder's grip and trip into something more comfortable. There was a need, you see, for inner space exploration, for a darker enlightenment to manifest your own destiny. There was a need, you see, for escape. There are, there are references throughout the play to kind of a tradition around the, uh, the history of escape from bondage, mm-hmm. escape from the slaveholder. Mm-hmm the freedom train, mm-hmm. all of that imagery co- comes up throughout this play. Mm-hmm. When, in fact, we're talking about a suburban kid from L.A. Exactly. Tell me about how, why and how you draw on that, you know, that, that history. Yeah, I, not, there's nothing noble about it. It's, 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 it's a very cheap, uh, sleazy ploy to push buttons in people who hold those terms and those ideas sacred. And I want to push those buttons, you know. Uh, I, I, I really kind of have to in order to tell the story because the rage that this kid has, you know, suburban middle class rage, and 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 why that's still, you know, an interesting thing for me because the, at the end of the play, the kid and Mr. Franklin are at the observatory, you know, looking out over Los Angeles. And there's a reason he's at that, that observatory because that's, you know, the whole James Dean, Salminio knife fight and the whole rebel without a cause thing and the whole like, Jimmy Dean, why are you so pissed off? You know, why are you the rebel without a cause? Well, there is a cause. Of course there's a cause, you know, you know, and the cause is that you want another life. You, there's not enough life. There's enough clothes, there's enough, there's enough uh, heat and electricity and gas, and there are enough cars, and there's enough room in the garage, but there's not enough life. And the thing is, this is something that I think I don't hear enough about in the, from the black world, from black art. I hear a lot about how we're suffering because of what is being done to us, but I don't hear too much about the suffering that we feel that in many ways is of our own creation, our own urge to buy into the same American myths that white people have bought into. Is that rage, is that angst identical to the, to the uh, discomfort, the unhappiness of the white teenager growing up in a conformist suburb? I don't think it, yeah, well, I don't think it's identical, but I think it's, it, it, it comes from the same place and it's equally valid. You know, it's like, I don't think, I don't think that... There's something, there's a thread that runs through black middle class life 
that seems to say because we have it so good compared to how things used to be that what's the point of complaining? What's the point of forming a punk rock band? You know, And this kid forms a punk rock band because there is a point to forming one. I, uh, I'll never forget a conversation I had many years ago with a relative and we were, like like black folks used to always do, and probably still do, moaning about the state of black representation on TV and how it's so unrealistic and how it messes so many people up and it's so unfair. And I think one of my aunts said, believe me, baby, the Brady Bunch messed up a whole bunch of white folks. <laughs> you know? I mean, because you know what? Come on, let's face it. You know what I mean? I mean, I mean that is not reality. There is no white reality on TV. So it would follow that there's no black reality on TV either. Yeah, yeah. It's all a cartoon. Thank you. <laughs> um, there's also some objection and resistance to the uh, to the um, strict notion of what's black. Yes. Of blackness yes. as a mask that yeah. black people force each other to wear. Yes. Or if not, they get told they're too white. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, that's a that's that's something that 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 happily I've been noticing lately that in a lot of um a lot of writing, a lot of black writing, a lot of social critiques that I've been that have, you know, in the last I say 10 or 15 years that that is starting to become something that people are aware of. When I was growing up, it was not. People didn't write about those things. Uh actually I think Ralph Ellison probably did, but he was kind of ahead of everybody, which is perfectly understandable. But um I mean, but it's, see, it's everyone. It's not just black people. You know, that's the thing with it. It's, 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 it's an American thing, you know, where somewhere this idea, when you go to a place like Germany, for instance, and you ask someone, how you doing? And they really tell you how they're doing. And it really seems weird, you know, and it seems so strange and it seems so kind of comical, goofy, but it's actually, what's wrong with that? You know, the question is, when we ask each other how we are, why don't we? tell the truth, you know? And so that's another thing that I think this kind of, all of those things, all of the hypocrisy and all those things, you, you th th those things are just like fuel to the fire for a teenager. And the thing about this play is that what happens is that fire gets lit when he's a teenager. And that's really, to me, what makes you an artist. An artist is basically this kid that, never grew up that fire just didn't get put out you know it's just it's very hard to put that fire out and that's a good thing when you're trying to be a creative fireball that's working weeks at a time on some music and when you're making great great big giant paintings and sculptures and designing wonderful buildings and symphonies and all sorts of things and then at some point you start to realize that there were other things like loving people that you should have maybe found time for, you know, and this confusion of art and life. And and yet, um, I think you uh, resist making this a morality tale. Yeah, definitely. Uh, because, among other things, you have the youth who's kind of being chastened by the storyline talk back at some yes, points. Yes, yes, yes. And argue with the, yes. the narrator. Yeah. He's kind of the superego here. Yeah, that was a key thing that we knew we didn't want. The same people who, the same people whose uh, buttons I wanted to push with 
certain aspects of the play, those very same people, I did not want those people who are my age to walk out of the theater feeling self-important, feeling that they had something on this kid. Because the truth of the matter is, the kid remains in many respects the ultimate artist because he creates the adult you know every move he makes is creating he's building this adult you know so yeah i didn't want that like oh, we've no we've learned now you know we've moved on and it's like no i want people to walk out feeling that these people are equals this narrator and this kid you know because they are you know i mean they are the narrator has one very distinct advantage over the kid, and the kid has a very distinct advantage over the narrator. Why did you choose to uh, create a play that has this narrator figure, played by you, mm-hmm. uh, as such a prominent part of the story? I, I I included the narrator because, I mean, that's that's what I do, you know? That's what I've been doing for 20, 25, 30 years, is being on stage and telling stories and singing songs, so... I mean, I don't, A, I don't know how to write a play. B, I, I never want to be considered a playwright because I am a songwriter and I knew there had to be a performative, non-actor-ish kind of element to telling the story. And I knew there had to be a band on stage because, again, that's what we do. That's what Heidi and I do. You know, we're, we're, we're not show folk, you know, and we're going up there every night playing that play like it's a show. You know, and that means that you will not hear the same guitar solo twice. You will not hear the same volume level twice. You know, you in some cases, you know, you will not hear the same words twice, you know, because we're a band, you know, and and, and we're not hidden behind the screen. We're not in the pit. You know, I'm straying from your question. But no, uh, no, actually, you know what you did? You totally anticipated my next question, which was the role of music in this play and uh, a feeling I had that. Whereas with most musicals, the characters every now and then break into song. Right. And in this case, every now and then they break into dialogue. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is one long song. Yeah, I feel like it is. I mean, it, there isn't a clear demarcation between the song portion and the drama portion. Thank you. I'm so glad. <laughs> I'm so glad that that's what we wanted. You uh-huh. know? I'm, I'm glad. I never know, you know, because we. You know, I mean, I I I, I approached it more like an album than a play in that a lot of people they have plays and the plays are like this sort of finely tuned th- instrument that you know where all the mirrors reflect at proper angles and i like sort of like sloppy albums that kind of like you know there's like a song that might have been recorded a year ago and then let's stick that on and then there's a song that we recorded in the bathroom and then there's a demo that we really like this demo let's not record it again let's just put the demo on that's how our records are you know and that's how this play is it's completely inconsistent it's completely uh it's collaged it's sometimes the narrator talks one way sometimes he talks another there's first person there's third person it's all over the place you know and you know, it has to function like rock and roll at the end of the day. It has, it has to function kind of sloppy like life. The arc of this play is a kid who leaves home to find home. Right. The, the, the main character named Youth um, leaves his loving mom, who's maybe too loving. But by the end, he realizes 
the value of her love in a way he didn't initially. Absolutely. And that's expressed in a song called Love Like That. Correct. Ain't it strange how it all makes perfect sense When your life is the evidence She needs to feel How the love made you more than real It shirts you up and it fills your cup And if you're singing Mother's love might seem insane It's cause she really knows everything Too bad it takes so long to reveal the whole admission Love like that can't be measured anyway Mother's love might seem insane It's cause she really knows everything You know, I, it's it's a very common thing to happen where at some point, you know, years I think after a person's death, when you when you just sort of feel that kind of absence, and it's not the kind of grief that's just someone's gone and that's scary and that hurts. It's it's really not that at all. It's really sort of recognizing unconditional love, recognizing the magnitude of it. And it's, you know, it, it's a tough thing because it's like, on one hand, this unconditional love is like terrifying and oppressive, but it's also like the best thing in the world, right? So I think it's sort of just having that perspective of being able to look back at that kind of loss. Uh, yeah, and it's, it's, like I said, it's more than just like the shock of, you know, someone important is gone. It's more like, oh, this entire universe is, is gone, you know, this expanse you know is somehow lost on you now so let's act and sing and dance and bring our talents to the fore then stack them from ceiling to floor and with our sculptures and paintings we'll have so much fun making a barricade before hair death knocks down our door See, it's a nightmare. We'll gild you end with this song, so Laugh and Sing, this waltz. Yes, 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 yes. It's a drinking, it's like a German drinking right. song sung by black people. Right, so you, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's, um, it is Germanic in that, in, in, in what it has to say. Uh, you know, death is coming soon. Yes. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry for now. Yeah. Why don't you laugh and sing and dance and bring all of life's thrills in store before her death knocks down the door? So let's laugh and sing and dance and bring. The, narr- the kid asked the narrator, What has he learned? And the narrator says, That when the chords of age shatter your sleep like a vengeful gong, You'll be out on your ass and cursing the last. That song was just passing for love. The idea that, you know, that art is going to fool you in the end. <laughs> it's going to fail you. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that when you're really at that place where you need love, art is going to suddenly, like, kind of, like, walk out the door. And, but, yeah, there's something about that European death sensibility that, we don't have that we lost i don't know it was puritans or i don't know who made that happen but europe sort of always like 
death is everywhere. They even leave it in the architecture sometimes, you know. And in Berlin, you know, they leave buildings up that were bombed and, you know, you have a portion of the building, you know. And, and it's in the poetry and it's in the song and it's something to kind of laugh about in some way, you know, and, and cry, but, you know, laugh too, you know. And, you know, I, 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 I learned that really slow you know it freaked me out when i first got there quite frankly just could not deal with how often and how comfortable germans were with the idea because i was a typical american and in many ways still am you know it's 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 one of those things that it's the hardest thing to the hardest thing to deal with you know and but at the same time there's a connection. The reason why these black people are singing that German drinking song and kind of singing it in this weird combination of black, black, black American singers would sing it and also doing a little bit German. The reason why, because I mean, there's blues does that too. You know, um, Robert Johnson's music and a lot of the old great acoustic blues, they talk about death quite a lot. You know, absolutely. I was going to say the one exception in America, which is, I agree with you, almost certainly a culture that's almost premised on, you know, avoiding the question, is black culture, traditional black culture, with all of its songs and statements about that hearse, yeah, that train, right, that right. chariot, exactly. You know, exactly. Yeah. So that's that's that that's that's something that um, you know, I mean, I I I, I really um. Yeah, when that Robert Johnson CD came out, you know, some years ago, which, you know, changed a lot of people. And, um, yeah, you listen to some of that stuff and you just go, yeah, okay, he's right there. <laughs> he, he, you know, he's, he's right there in that zone, you know, <laughs> where he's, he's looking it right in the face, you know, you know. But that's the only thing to me, like a 45 year old narrator can say to a kid at the end of the day, hey, this is going to happen. Because you don't think about that. You know, you just don't. You don't think about it. You know, and, and can you even, I mean, I try really hard sometimes now to think back to when I did not think about death. You know, it's like I was another person. It's like I actually, I remember when people would talk about things that like someone's mom or aunt was dying from and those words to describe the illness were just like, they were like foreign languages. It was like someone was speaking French, you know. They didn't even enter into my consciousness. Death is what happens to other people. Yeah, what <laughs> happens to older people, <laughs> <Yeah>. too. <laughs> Who are other people. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> older people are other people. So, yeah, so I mean, that was just, that. You know, that's the only thing really at the end of the day that the narrator can say to this kid, and so that's why he sings it in one of those drinking songs. Come on, let's laugh, laugh, laugh. Laugh, all of my thrills in store. Oh, come laugh, 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 all of life's thrills in store. Stu, it's been great talking to you. Hey, it's been a pleasure. I've been speaking with the singer and songwriter, Stu. We've been talking about his musical, Passing Strange, co-created by Heidi Rodewald and Annie Dorson. 
Passing Strange ended its run on Broadway last year, and it's captured in a new film by Spike Lee. It's available on demand on many cable outlets. And that's it for this week's 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. back next week.